Okay, so last week we saw that Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden because of their rebellion against God. Tonight we are going to see the harsh reality of what life was like after the fall. We are going to see lots of firsts as we go through Genesis 4 tonight. The first pregnancy, the first birth, the first family, the first brothers, the first case of sibling rivalry, the first worship service, the first mention of sin in the Bible, the first murder, the first cover-up, the first recorded conflict between the seed of woman and the seed of the serpent, the first death, and the first martyr. So let's begin by looking at the destructive spread of sin that occurs after the fall. So look with me in Genesis 4, and we will start in verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So the first thing we see here in the opening verses of Genesis 4, happening outside of the Garden of Eden, is God giving Adam and Eve a son. So can't you just imagine the excitement in Eve's voice when she births the first human ever born? She looks at her baby boy in wonder, I am sure, counting his fingers and toes and acknowledging that he is a gift from the Lord, a miracle. We saw in our lesson last week that Eve's remark in verse 1 is the first recorded instance of God's name being spoken out loud. And what she says reveals the relationship that she has with the Lord. She names the baby Cain, a name that sounds like the Hebrew word that means gotten or acquired. Eve recognizes the power of God and the creation of life when she says, With the help of the Lord, I have gotten this child. As she looks at the child in her arms, I'm sure her heart is full of hope. Perhaps she thinks back, could this be the one? The one that God was talking about in Genesis 3.15? The deliverer who will crush the serpent's head. But it will not be long before that initial hope is shattered. In verse 2, Eve has another son, Abel. Abel grows up and he becomes a shepherd. His brother Cain grows up and he becomes a farmer. From this point on, most of this passage is focused on Cain. In fact, Abel never speaks here, but Cain does, and more importantly, God does. So let's continue in Genesis 4 and verse 3. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. So on the outside, these brothers have a lot in common. They have the same parents. They have the same home life, the same spiritual upbringing. They both grew up hearing stories from their parents about life in the garden, I'm sure, and about the eviction from that lush paradise because of their sinful choice. They both had good jobs, and apparently they had both been taught to worship the Lord because we see here that they both bring an offering. And then we see a major difference. Abel's offering is accepted by the Lord, and Cain's is rejected. 
So what is the difference in the two offerings here? Um, this was in our homework. The text here in Genesis 4 does not give us a clear answer, and commentators have different opinions. So some think it was because Cain just brought some of what he had grown, while Abel brought the best of the best, the fattest of the firstborn from his flock. Could it be that God knew that Cain was just going through the motions, that he was giving a token gift while Abel was generously giving his very best to God? Other commentators think it had something to do with the kind of offering, a grain offering versus a blood offering. We saw last week at the end of Genesis 3 that God demonstrated the need for substitutionary death of an innocent victim to cover sin when he provided animal skins to clothe Adam and Eve. It could be that God taught Adam and Eve about sacrifices and the shedding of blood and that they would have passed this on to their boys. So by failing to give a blood offering, Cain gives no indication that he recognizes that he is a sinner. What we do know for sure about the difference in the two offerings has to do what is going on inside with the brothers. It's a matter of what's in their hearts. Hebrews 11:4 says, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. And just a couple of verses later in Hebrews 11, we are told that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So the biggest difference between the two brothers and their offering is that Abel had faith and Cain did not. John Phillips writes, Cain decked out his altar with boughs of holly and loaded it with fruits and flowers. It was fragrant, beautiful, and the work of his own hands. It ignored Calvary, set at naught the word of God, offended God, and was pointedly rejected by God. So regardless of the offering that Cain would have brought to the Lord, God would have rejected it because of the condition of his heart. And when his offering is rejected, we see just how evil his heart really is. Verse 5 is the first mention of anger in the Bible. Cain is so angry he cannot hide it. Scripture says that his countenance fell. You can see it all over his face. Ed Welch gives this insight about anger. Anger will assert itself. It refuses to be contained. If anger is in our hearts, it has our hearts. And we all know anger is an emotion. It is a feeling. Feelings are real, but they are not always true. Our emotions are the way that our flesh often speaks to us. And Cain's flesh here is shouting. We have to be very careful to not allow our feelings to guide our hearts. At first, Cain is angry with his brother for having a better offering. And then the longer he stews about what has happened, he gets mad at God. Cain approached God on his own terms. And when he realizes that God will not lower himself to his standards, he gets irate. So let's look on at verse 6 and 7. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So something that I want us to pay close attention to as we go through and work through this text is God's character on display 
verse by verse. And that is something that I was taught when I was first discipled that really changed the way that I studied scripture and just came to know God in a more real way was to constantly be looking for displays of his character and his nature on the pages of scripture. And it's all throughout. So I'm going to point those out as we come across them tonight. The questions that God asked Cain here, they are rhetorical. God knows the answers. And here we see God as the wonderful counselor. So his nature is on display here, trying to get Cain to face his sin. He also shows his gracious nature to offer Cain a warning. And to do so, God gives Cain a visual picture of sin. He personifies sin as a predator, crouching at his door, ready to pounce. So in his loving kindness, he is painting a picture for Cain so that he can clearly see what is happening. Sadly, God's warning bounces right off of Cain's hardened heart, and he begins his willful downward spiral into the pit of sin. So look with me in verse 8. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So let's walk through these verses and trace the effect of sin in Cain's life. In the span of just eight short verses, he goes from bringing an offering to the Lord to being permanently removed from his presence. That is how quickly the sin of anger plants in his heart and produces evil fruit. As Donna said last week, the enemy feeds on uncrucified flesh. The downward spiral in Cain's life escalates quickly. What began with anger moves to deception. The NIV gives a little better picture of what happens next in verse 8. It says, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Cain deceives his brother. He entices Abel to go out into a field away from their parents, away from their family, so that Adam and Eve cannot see or hear what is about to take place. When he gets them out away from everyone, his anger swells up and he murders his brother. This is the way sin works. Do you remember back in Genesis 3, the, the serpent had to talk Eve into sin? Now sin has taken such a hold in Cain's life that God cannot talk him out of sin. We see the darkness of the human heart, one chapter removed from the Garden of Eden, premeditated murder in the first degree. And why would Cain kill his brother? To remove the competition. He doesn't want to be compared to his brother anymore. 
He wants to remove the competition, and he wants to lash out at God by killing the man whose offering he accepted. One minute, Cain is making an offering to God. The next, he is murdering his brother. And then after he kills Abel, he tries to cover it up and lie his way out of what he has done. So Cain moves from anger to deception to murder to lying, continually spiraling downward. When God asks Cain, where is your brother? He says, I don't know. There is a total denial of responsibility on Cain's part for what he has done. God doesn't ask the question because he doesn't know where Abel is. He is well aware of what Cain has done. God is trying to get Cain to confess, to repent. And again, I think this points to the heart of God. That is always his goal is to redeem us and to restore us and to call us to repentance. Just like he did when he confronted Adam and Eve in the garden. At least Adam did own up to what he had done. Cain outright lies and the spiral continues. It's downward descent into pride. When he flippantly replies to God, am I my brother's keeper? Another layer of crust forms around Cain's heart as he basically retorts to the Almighty God, the creator of the universe. Who do you think I am? Isn't that your job, God, to keep up with your person? If ever you doubted the mercy and grace of God, doubt no more. Only amazing grace could keep God from reaching down and pinching Cain's prideful head off. And just when you think it could not get worse, it does. It continues to spiral. Apparently, Cain has buried his brother's body thinking no one would notice. That is what pride does. But God has seen the whole thing as he always does. He is Jehovah Elroy, the God who sees. He heard the cry of Abel's blood as it spilled out onto the ground. And he confronts Cain with a piercing question. What have you done? Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And before Cain can say another word, God issues a twofold punishment. First of all, Cain is cursed from the ground. He has defiled the ground with the blood of Abel. So no longer will the ground yield any produce for him. His life as a successful farmer, that is over. Verse 11 here is an echo of Genesis 3 when God cursed the serpent in verse 14 and then went on to curse the ground in verse 17. But this time, God goes further than he did with Cain's parents and he curses Cain himself. This is the first time in Scripture when a human is cursed. John will later make this clear in 1 John 3.12 when he writes, Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Secondly, God sentences Cain to be a wanderer and a vagabond. Warren Wearsby writes, A vagabond has no home. A fugitive is running from home. A stranger is away from home, but a pilgrim is heading home. In Deuteronomy 30, 19, God says, I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. Cain makes the wrong choice here. And instead of being a pilgrim in life, he will be a stranger, he will be a fugitive, and a wanderer. When Cain replies to God, 
There is no repentance in his heart. There is no fear of God, no regret for the loss of innocent life. He is only concerned about the consequences of his punishment. Notice, Cain does not say, my guilt is too great to bear. No, he says, my punishment is too great to bear. Cain cares only about Cain. He is afraid that someone is going to kill him, and his focus is only on his self-preservation. In a sermon he preaches, Tim Keller said that Martin Luther's definition of sin was man curved in upon himself. What Luther is saying is that sin always focuses on self. What Luther is saying is that sin always chooses self above God or above others. Sin is about furthering our own agenda. And I have to believe that is why Jesus instructed us in the Gospels, if we wanted to be a follower of his, a disciple of his, we had to deny ourselves, set our agendas aside, turn away from our own selfish desires, crucify our flesh, and follow him. Cain is not at all repentant over what has happened to Abel. Instead, what he says is, I'm really upset about what is going to happen to me. Being upset over the consequences of his sin is not repentance. That kind of unrepentant sorrow only reveals how self-centered Cain really is. Yet, God still cares about Cain. So in compassion, which again displays the heart of God, God tells Cain that he will place a mark on him so that he will be protected from being killed. Now, we do not know how God marked him, but we do know that it was a mark of kindness and of grace. God's protection gives Cain time to repent still, but apparently sin has such a hold and a grip on his heart, he does not choose that. And as the final thread of Cain's life unravels, the most tragic consequence of Cain's sin is that he is removed from the presence of God. And as you hear those words, as I say them, does it not sting your heart to think about being removed from the presence of God? But you know, sin doesn't just ruin an individual life. It is a pandemic that stains and ruins the entire culture, and the result is devastating. What we see in verses 17 through 24 about the descendants of Cain is very telling. So let's go back to Genesis 4, verse 17. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch, after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. Lamech took to himself two wives, the name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zillah. Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Verse 23, Lamech said, Actually, he sings to his wives, Adah and Zillah. Listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. 
So we see here the beginning of secular society, a society that is established apart from God. Cain gets married, he has a son, he builds a city, and the lineage of Cain is established. Even though Cain and his descendants are stained by sin, we see that they are still humans that are created in the image of God. We know that because they are creating. And what they are creating is a culture, a very innovative culture. In verse 20, we see a food chain being established by Jabel, who raises livestock to use for food. Then we see Jabel's artsy brother, Jubal, in verse 21. Instruments are created and music is made. And not to be outdone, Tubal Cain is the forger of all kinds of tools made of iron and bronze. But did you notice something in these verses? God is never mentioned. This is a culture that although is making technological advances, it turns its back on God. They are producing culture, but it is a culture that is driven by the flesh and stained by sin. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? In his book, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer says, Our disordered desires are normalized in a sinful society, which functions as a kind of echo chamber for the flesh, a self-validating feedback loop where we're all telling each other what we want or what our flesh wants to hear. And as we all know, we are living in a culture where media and social media have become echo chambers that normalize sin. It's not shocking anymore. It, anything goes, whatever feels good and makes you happy. We're constantly receiving messages that normalize sin in our society. That is what Jude calls in Jude 11, the way of Cain. And that humanistic stain of sin permeating our modern culture can be traced all the way back to Genesis 4. Within just one chapter of Eden, we see the way of Cain on a rampage in the life of his descendant, Lamech. First, we see polygamy introduced. We know that in Genesis 2.24, God laid out his design for marriage very clearly, the union of one man and one woman in a public covenant before God. In total disregard for God's design, Lamech goes outside of those boundaries and he marries two women. He is an arrogant, boastful, and proud man who decides that one woman is clearly not enough for him. And you can hear the oppression in his voice when he says, you wives of Lamech. This is the beginning of the oppression of women that is still prevalent in so many cultures today. This is also the first record of rebellion against God's standard of marriage, and it opened wide the floodgate. Think about where we are today. It's getting to the point where people don't ask, how long have you been married? Instead, how long have you two been together? And homosexuality, something that was once hidden in the back of the closet, is now on parade, literally on parade, and celebrated. Homosexual marriage is not God's design for marriage. It is man's perversion. Believing anything different from God's standard is, as Romans 1.25 says, exchanging the truth for a lie, which is where it all began in the beginning, was Eve exchanging God's truth for a lie. So back to Lamech. 
Not only is he oppressive, but he is also violent. The scripture tells us that he kills a young boy for wounding him. And the Hebrew word here for wound is bruise. So a boy bruises Lamech and he murders him. And then he writes a song about it. That is a foreshadowing of so many songs that we hear on secular radio that brag about sin and glamorize it. The way of Cain is devastating, and it is, in fact, saturating our culture. Well, ladies, this week's lesson personally pierced my own heart in a very, very powerful way. Like many of you, this is a familiar text, a familiar story that a lot of us could very quickly give the details of. Um, I don't have time to share all the details tonight with you, but I can tell you that God has dealt with me through this. I'm going to close this out tonight by sharing a little bit of what I wrote as I journaled this week as I went through the study of Genesis 4. I imagine the predator-prey relations of the wild, lion and gazelle, bear and salmon, fox and rabbit, hawk and duckling. God has given me a vivid picture of the enemy crouching, creeping in on me to pounce and devour Not just me, but my husband, my children, my family. He has spoken to me about what may be lurking in my heart that could lead me away from his presence or open a door for the enemy to slither in. No, it's not blatant outward sin in my life at this point that others can point to, but it is still displeasing to God, and it has no place in the life of a Christ follower. So God, what are the things I may overlook or take lightly? What about my thought life? Longing for man's approval more than yours. Worry and fear about the future, especially as it relates to my boys' futures. Hopelessness in difficult situations. Not choosing joy as I wait on you. A weak and small faith, especially related to those things I've been praying about for years Is Jesus really enough? I know the enemy does not know my thoughts, but he sees my actions and my responses. He watches. He pays close attention. He knows my weak spots by observing my life, and he is crouching, lying in wait to lure me in, trip me up, snatch me with his talons to wreak havoc in my life. I want to die to self, just like Jesus said in Matthew 16, to choose the way of you, O God, not my own way, as Cain did. I want to be quick to repent, to have godly sorrow rather than worldly sorrow, repentance rather than remorse. I do not want to have any unconfessed sin that stands in the way of intimate fellowship and your manifest presence. Rather than spiraling downward into sin, I want to be looking upward, focusing on the things of the Lord, having a devoted heart to righteousness and doing well. Lisa Whittle says in her book, The Hard Good, it is death to self that is the hardest, the letting go of anything that might prevent us from caring more about it than obeying God. So as we close tonight, in Genesis 4, 7, I want to read this to you once again. 
God warns Cain and he says, If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. God's warning to Cain is a vivid reminder that sin is like a wild animal waiting for its next victim. Do you remember what God said to Cain? Do well. Because if we do not do well, if we are not careful to repent and to obey the Lord, sin will pounce on us and it will devour us. Satan has no mercy. He is no respecter of persons, of age, or position. A year from now, you likely won't remember most of what has been said this evening, but if you will do this one thing I'm going to ask you to do, you will be in a powerful position to avoid being mastered and devoured by sin and the enemy. I want to ask you to hide the words of Genesis 4-7 in your heart, to memorize it, to meditate on it, to internalize it, and to consistently pray it back to God. You have memory verse cards on your tables there with Genesis 4-7, so please take one with you. As Genesis 4-7 is firmly etched upon your heart, the Holy Spirit will put you on notice when sin is crouching at your door, just waiting for the right time to spring. He will use these words from His Word to open your eyes to recognize the attacks of the enemy who walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, and who is crouching at your door, waiting to attack you and your family. So life and death are being placed before you tonight. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. James 1.15 tells us, After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So death or life, just like Cain, the choice is yours.